Chapter Three of Free Air. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Free Air by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Three: A Young Man in a Raincoat. Huh! Such an auto! Look, it break my harness already. Two dollar that cost you to mend it. The auto is too heavy. Stormed Zolzak. All right, all right. Only for heaven's sakes. Go get another harness, Claire shrieked. Five fifty dot will be in all, Zolzak grinned. Claire was standing in front of him. She was thinking of other drivers, poor people in old cars, who had been at the mercy of this golden-hearted one. She stared past him in the direction from which she had come. Another motor was in sight. It was a tin beetle of a car, that agile, cheerful, rut-jumping model known as a bug, with a home-tacked, home-painted tin cowl and tail covering the striped chassis of a little cheap teal car. The lone driver wore an old black raincoat with an atrocious corduroy collar and a new plaid cap in the hairy louder tartan. The bug skipped through mud where the Boltwoods Gomez had slogged and rolled. Its pilot drove up behind her car and leaped out. He trotted forward to Claire and Zolzak. His eyes were twenty-seven or eight, but his pink cheeks were twenty. And when he smiled, shyly, radiantly, he was no age at all, but eternal boy. Claire had a blurred impression that she had seen him before, some place along the road. Stuck? he inquired, not very intelligently. How much is Adolph charging you? He wants three-fifty, and his harness broke, and he wants two dollars. Oh, so he's still working that old gag. I've heard all about Adolf. He keeps that harness for pulling out cars, and it always busts. The last time, though, he only charged six bits to get it mended. Now let me reason with him. The young man turned with vicious quickness, and for the first time Claire heard pigeon German. German as it is spoken between Americans who have never learned it, and Germans who have forgotten it. Schon sex hundred times ich höre all about the way you are been doing Otto Zolzak, you verfluchte Schweinhund, and I'll set the sheriff on you. Dot ain't true. Maybe einmal die Woche kommt somebody and ich muss die Arbeit immer lassen und in die Regen ausgehen und semal how die boots sind mit mud covered two dollars it don't pay for die boots. Now that's Plenty and enough out of you, Zion die boots, verdammt, and mach das du fortgeist, muddy boots, hell, put my line egg in the boots and beat it, verleicht, maybe I'll by golly arrest you myself, vice do, I'm a special deputy sheriff. The young man stood stockily, he seemed to swell as his somewhat muddy hand was shaken directly at, under, and about the circumference of Adolf Zolzak's hairy nose. The farmer was stronger, but he retreated. He took up the reins. He whined, Don't I get nothing I break the harness? Sure, you get ten years, and you get out. From thirty yards up the road, Zolzak flung back, You think you're pretty damn smart. That was his last serious reprisal. Clumsily, as one not used to it, the young man lifted his cap to Claire, showing straight, wiry, rope-colored hair, 
brushed straight back from a rather fine forehead. Gee, I was sorry to have to swear and holler like that, but it's all Adolph understands. Please don't think there's many of the folks around here like him. They say he's the meanest man in the county. I'm immensely grateful to you, but do you know much about motors? How can I get out of this mud? She was surprised to see the youngster blush. His clear skin flooded, his engaging smile came out again, and he hesitated. Let me pull you out. She looked from her hulking car to his mechanical flea. He answered back, I can do it all right. I'm used to the gumbo, regular mud hen. Just add my power to yours. Have you a tow rope? No, I never thought of bringing one. I'll get mine. She walked with him back toward his bug. It lacked not only top and side curtains, but even windshield and running board. It was a toy, a cardboard box on toothpick axles. Strapped to the bulging back was a wicker suitcase, partly covered by tarpaulin. From the seat peered a little furry face. A cat! she exclaimed as he came up with a wire rope, extracted from the tin back. Yes, she's the captain of the boat. I'm just the engineer. What is your name? Before he answered, the young man strode ahead to the front of her car, Claire obediently trotting after him. He stooped to look at her front axle. He raised his head, glanced at her, and he was blushing again. Her name is Ver de Ver, he confessed. Then he fled back to his bug. He drove it in front of the Gomez Dep. The hole in the road itself was as deep as the one on the edge of the cornfield where she was stuck, but he charged it. She was fascinated by his skill. Where she would for a tenth of a second have hesitated while choosing the best course, he hurled the bug straight at the hole, plunged through with sheets of glossy black water arching on either side, then viciously twisted the car to the right, to the left, and straight again as he followed the tracks with the solidest bottoms. Strapped above the tiny angle iron step which replaced his running board was an old spade. He dug channels in front of the four wheels of her car so that they might go up inclines, instead of pushing against the straight walls of mud he had thrown up. On these inclines he strewed the brush she had brought, halting to ask, with head alertly lifted from his stooped huddle in the mud, Did you have to get this brush yourself? Yes, horrid wet. He merely shook his head in commiseration. He fastened the tow rope to the rear axle of his car, to the front of hers. Now will you be ready to put on all your power as I begin to pull? He said casually, rather respectfully. When the struggling bug had pulled the wire rope taut, she opened the throttle. The rope trembled. Her car seemed to draw sullenly back. Then it came out, out, really out, which is the most joyous sensation any motorist shall ever know an excitement over actually moving again, as fast as any healthy young snail, she drove on, on, the young man ahead grinning back at her. Nor did she stop, nor he, till both cars were safe on the merely thick mud a quarter of a mile away. She switched off the power, and suddenly she was in a whirlwind of dizzy, sickening tiredness. Even in her abandonment to exhaustion, she noticed that the young man did not stare at her, but, keeping his back to her, removed the tow rope and stowed it away in his bug. She wondered whether it was tact 
or yokelish indifference. Her father spoke for the first time since the Galahad of the tin bug had come. How much do you think we ought to give this fellow? Now of all the cosmic problems yet unsolved, not cancer, nor the future of poverty, are the flustering questions, but these twain. Which is worse, not to wear evening clothes at a party at which you find everyone else dressed, or to come in evening clothes to a house where, it proves, they are never worn? And, which is worse, not to tip when a tip has been expected, or to tip when the tip is an insult? In discomfort of spirit and wetness of ankles, Claire shuddered, Oh, dear, I don't believe he expects us to pay him. He seems like an awfully independent person. Maybe we'd offend him if we offered. The only reasonable thing to be offended at in this veil of tears is not being offered money. Just the same. Oh, dear, I'm so tired. But good little Claire will climb out and be diplomatic. She pinched her forehead to hold in her crackling brain and wobbled out into new scenes of mud and wetness but she came up to the young man with the most rain-washed and careless of smiles. Won't you come back and meet my father? He's terribly grateful to you, as I am. And may we, you've worked so hard, and about saved our lives. May I pay you for that labor? We're really much indebted. Oh, it wasn't anything. Tickled to death if I could help you. He heartily shook hands with her father, and he droned, Pleased to meet you, Mr. Uh... Boltwood, Mr. Boltwood, my name is Milt, Milton Daggett. See you have a New York license on your car. We don't see but mighty few of those through here. Glad I could help you. Ah, yes, Mr. Daggett, Mr. Boltwood was uninterestedly fumbling in his money pocket. Behind Milt Daggett, Claire shook her head wildly, rattling her hands as though she were playing castanets. Mr. Boltwood shrugged. He did not understand. His relations with young men in cheap raincoats were entirely monetary. They did something for you, and you paid them, preferably not too much, and they ceased to be, whereas Milt Daggett respectfully but solidly continued to be, and Mr. Henry Boltwood's own daughter was halting the march of affairs by asking irrelevant questions. Didn't we see you back in, what was that village we came through back about twelve miles? Schoenstrom, suggested Milt. Yes, I think that was it. Didn't we pass you or something? We stopped at a garage there to change a tire. I don't think so. I was in town, though, this morning. Say, uh, did you and your father grab any eats? Uh, I mean, did you get dinner there? No, I wish we had. Well, say, I didn't either. And I'd be awfully glad if you folks would have something to eat with me now. Claire tried to give him a smile, but the best she could do was to lend him one. She could not associate interesting food with Milt and his mud-slobbered, tin-covered, dun-painted teal bug. He seemed satisfied with her dubious grimace. By his suggestion, they drove ahead to a spot where the cars could be parked on firm grass beneath oaks. On the way, Mr. Boltwood lifted his voice in dismay. His touch of nervous prostration had not made him queer or violent. He retained a touching faith in good food. We might find some good little hotel and have some chops and just some mushrooms and peas, insisted the man from Brooklyn Heights. 
Oh, I don't suppose the country hotels are really so awfully good, she speculated. And look, that nice funny boy. We couldn't hurt his feelings. He's having so much fun out of being a good Samaritan. From the mysterious rounded back of his car, Milt Daggett drew a tiny stove to be heated by a can of solidified alcohol, a frying pan that was rather large for dolls but rather small for square-fingered hands, a jar of bacon, eggs in a bag, a coffee pot, a can of condensed milk, and a litter of unsorted tin plates and china cups. While, by his request, Claire scoured the plates and cups, he made bacon and eggs and coffee, the little stove in the bottom of his car sheltered by the cooks bending over it. The smell of food made Claire forgiving toward the fact that she was wet through, that the rain continued to drizzle down her neck. He lifted his hand and demanded, Take your shoes off. Huh? He gulped. He stammered. I mean, your shoes are soaked through. If you sit in the car, I'll put your shoes up by the engine. It's pretty well heated from racing it in the mud. You can get your stockings dry under the cowl. She was amused by the elaborateness with which he didn't glance at her while she took off her low shoes and slipped her quite too thin black stockings under the protecting tin cowl. She reflected, He has such a good, nice, awkward gentleness, but such bad taste. They're really good ankles. Apparently ankles are not done in teal-bug circles. His sisters didn't even have limbs. But do fairies have sisters? He is a fairy. When I'm out of the mud, he'll turn his raincoat into a pair of lordly white wings and vanish. But what will become of the cat? Thus her tired brain. Like a squirrel in a revolving cage, while she sat primly and scraped at a clot of rust on a tin plate and watched him put on the bacon and eggs. Wondering if cats were used for this purpose in the Daggett family, she put soaked, unhappy, ver de ver, on her feet to her own great comfort and the cat's delight. It was an open car, and the rain still rained, and a strange young man was afoot from her, tending the not very crackly fire, but rarely had Claire felt so domestic. Milt was apparently struggling to say something. After several bobs of his head, he ventured, you're so wet. I'd like for you to take my raincoat. No, really, I'm already soaked through. You keep dry. He was unhappy about it. He plucked at a button of the coat. She turned him from the subject. I hope Lady Verdever is getting warm, too. Seems to be. She's kind of demanding. She wanted a little car of her own, but I didn't think she could keep up with me. Not on a long hike. A little car? With her paws on the tiny wheel? Oh, sweet. Are you going far, Mr. Daggett? Yes, quite a ways, to Seattle, Washington. Oh, really? Extraordinary. We're going there, too. Honest? You driving all the way? Oh, no, of course, your father. No, he doesn't drive. By the way, I hope he isn't too miserable back there. I'll be darned. Both of us going to Seattle. That's what they call a coincidence, isn't it? Hope I'll see you on the road sometime, but I don't suppose I will. Once you're out of the mud, your Gomez will simply lose my teal. Not necessarily. You're the better driver, and I shall take it easy. Are you going to stay long in Seattle? It was not merely a polite dinner payment question. She wondered. She could not place this fresh-cheeked, unworldly young man so far from his home. Why, I kind of hope. Government railroad, Alaska. I'm going to try to get in on that somehow. 
I've never been out of Minnesota in my life, but there's a couple mountains and oceans and things I thought I'd like to see. So I just put my suitcase and ver de ver in the machine and started out. I burn distillate instead of gas, so it doesn't cost much. If I ever happen to have five whole dollars, why, I might go on to Japan. That would be jolly. Though I suppose I'd have to eat. What is it? Pickled fish? There's a woman from near my town went to the Orient as a missionary. From what she says, I guess all you need in Japan to make a house is a bottle of mucilage and a couple of old newspapers and some two-by-fours. And you can have the house on a purple mountain with cherry trees down below. And he put clenched hands to his lips. His head was bowed. And the ocean. Lord, the ocean. And we'll see it at Seattle. Bay, anyway. And steamers there just come from India. Huh. Getting pretty darn poetic here. Eggs are done. The young man did not again wander into visions. He was all briskness as he served her bacon and eggs, took a plate of them to Mr. Boltwood in the Gomez, gouged into his own. Having herself scoured the tin plates, Claire was not repulsed by their naked tinniness, and the coffee in the broken-handled china cup was tolerable. Milt drank from the top of a vacuum bottle. He was silent. Immediately after the lunch, he stowed the things away. Claire expected a drawn-out, tact-demanding farewell, but he climbed into his bug, said, "'Good-bye, Miss Boltwood, good luck,' and was gone. The rainy road was bleakly empty without him. It did not seem possible that Claire's body could be nagged into going on any longer. Her muscles were relaxed, her nerves frayed. But the moment the Gomez started, she discovered that magic change which every long-distance motorist knows. Instantly she was alert, seemingly able to drive forever. The pilot's instinct ruled her, gave her tireless eyes and sturdy hands. Surely she had never been weary, never would be, so long as it was hers to keep the car going. She had driven perhaps six miles when she reached a hamlet called St. Klopstock. On the bedraggled mud and shanty main street, a man was loading crushed rock into a truck. By him was a large person in a prosperous raincoat, who stepped out and held up his hand. Claire stopped. You the young lady that got stuck in that hole by Adolph Zolzak's? Yes, and Mr. Zolzak wasn't very nice about it. He's going to be just elegant about it now, and there ain't going to be any more hole. I think Adolph has been keeping it muddy, throwing in soft dirt, and he made a good and plenty lot out of pulling out tourists. Bill and I are going down right now and fill it up with stone. Milt Daggett come through here. He's got a nerve, that fellow. But I did have to laugh. He says to me, Barney? This was just now. He hadn't more than just drove out of town. He said to me, Barney? He says, You're the richest man in this township, and the banker and you got a big car yourself, and you think you're one whale of a political boss, he says, and yet you let that Zolzak maintain a private ocean against the peace and damned horrible inconvenience of the Commonwealth of Minnesota. He's got a great line of talk, that fellow. He told me how you got stuck, made me so ashamed. I'd been to New York myself, and right away I got Bill, and we're going down and hold a donation and surprise party on Adolph and fill that hole. But won't Adolph take it out again? The banker was puffy, but his eyes were of stone. From the truck he took a shotgun. He drawled, In that case, the surprise party will include an elegant wake. But how did...
Who is this extraordinary Milt Daggett? Him? Oh, nobody specially. He's just a fellow down here at Schoenstrom. But we all know him. Goes to all the dances, thirty miles around. Thing about him is, if he sees something wrong, he picks out some poor fellow like me and says what he thinks. Claire drove on. She was aware that she was looking for Milt's bug. It was not in sight. Father, she exclaimed, do you realize that this lad didn't tell us he was going to have the hole filled? Just did it. He frightens me. I'm afraid that when we reach Gopher Prairie for the night, we'll find he has engaged us for the suite that Prince Collars and Cuffs once slept in. Hmm, <sighs> yawned her father. Curious young man, he said. Pleased to meet you. Um, fresh air makes me so sleepy. And, fooled you, got through that mud hole anyway. And he said, look, fields stretch out here, so not a tree except the willow groves around those farmhouses. And he said, gee, so many times, and dinner for the noon meal. And his nails. No, I suppose he really is just a farm youngster. Mr. Boltwood did not answer. His machine-finished smile indicated an enormous lack of interest in young men in teal bugs. End of chapter 3